As we get started, feel free to turn up the volume as need be. As we get started this morning, I uh, want to thank you on behalf of the pastoral team for those who came out yesterday and sacrificed time and energy. Thank you for coming out to serve this local body. We're grateful to God for you. So thank you to all of you who were here yesterday. And so let us pray. Father, we're grateful for this time that you have given to us on the Lord's Day. Help us to rest in you, to rest in your word, that you would help the preacher preach for the glory of your name, that you would remove the scales from our eyes and the hardness of our heart, that our hearts would be inflamed with the glory of God. So help us now, we pray in Christ. Amen. Years ago, there was a professor, a popular professor by the name of Professor Keedy, and he was at the Pennsylvania Law School. And he would start every semester, the first day of every semester, by walking up to the chalkboard. And he would write two numbers on the chalkboard. He would write four, and then he would write two. And then he would say to his students, what is the solution to the problem? And they thought that it was a math mathematical problem. One student would add. And so the student would yell out six. And then another student thought it was a sub subtraction problem. And he would say two. And then the professor would say, you are all wrong. All of you are wrong. Why? Because you have failed to ask the most important question of all. And the question is this, what is the problem? What is the problem? Professor Keedy understood that his students would spend so much time trying to find a solution to the problem, to the, the answer to the wrong problem. It's like polishing brass on the Titanic. It's sinking. And for many of us who are Christians, we spend too much time dealing with superficial problems. We deal with the symptoms. We don't deal with the core root or the bottom line problem. And the problem in the world is not simply a bad government or liberal professors at the university. As Christians, we must see that every problem as sin. And the answer to sin is always Jesus. We are in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, entitled Eyes of Faith. And you'll see that in your bulletin. The main point that I want to get across this morning is this, that the miracle is not in physical healing, which if a person is healed, that is definitely a blessing. But the miracle is not in physical healing, but having the eyes of faith to clearly see Jesus. And if you see today's text only as a miracle of healing, then you've missed the whole point of today's sermon. You've misread the Bible. You've misread the text for today. It's not simply about healing, but it's more than that. And we need to ask the Lord to help us this morning to remove the scales from our eyes that we would see this text very, very crystal clear, that we would see Jesus. As a reminder, our background, 
starts really in verse 1. The Sermon on the Plain has been completed. It's finished. Jesus has finished instructing and teaching the crowd, the general crowd, and his disciples. Now Jesus enters a new area. This is a new scene in the gospel text. They enter a town or a city called Capernaum. Capernaum is a city or a town on the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. And this area is known as a major trade or economic hub in that Galilean region. There are six characters in our text today. The first character is Jesus. The second character is the general crowd with the disciples of Jesus. The third character is the centurion, and the fourth character is the centurion's servant. There's also a fifth character that I would summarize as the first group of messengers, and then the sixth and final character is the second group of messengers, and I'll get into this here in a few moments. But verse number two sets up the entire context. Context is very important, and as Bible believers committed to the Word of God, we must read the Word of God in context. We cannot rip it out of context and make the Bible say whatever we want it to say if we're going to be faithful Bible students. Well, verse 2 sets it up this way. A centurion, which is a Roman, which is meaning he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, this Roman army officer who approximately approximately leads a hundred military men. And the same word for centurion can be translated as captain. He's in a position of not just any authority, but he's in the position of military authority. And what that means is that this Roman officer is educated to a certain level. He may have a certain amount of financial resources at his disposal. And the centurion has a servant. I would argue this is his personal servant. And this servant is very, very ill, very sick. He's at the point of death. He's about to die and step into eternity. And the centurion cares for his personal servant, so much so that it's time to get help. And the only place that he can get help is Jesus. He considers his personal servant as precious. He cares for this servant. He loves his servant. This is unusual for this type of context during that time frame. But nevertheless, the centurion loves his servant, cares for him. And it's time to get help. And in our text today, there are three points of view. Three points of view. You'll see this in your bulletin. Point number one, the Jews' point of view starting in verse 3. Point number two is the centurion's point of view, starting in verse 6. And then point number three, and finally, Jesus' point of view, starting at the end of verse 7. So point number one, the Jews' point of view. Read with me in verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. How did this centurion 
hear about Jesus. The text never directly states how he heard about Jesus. But maybe it's because of the fame of Jesus has spread throughout the region. Because every time Jesus performs a miracle and there's witnesses, news travels fast. And if you perform multiple miracles and there's more witnesses, good news travels faster. So maybe the centurion had heard about a few of the miracles that Jesus had completed. For example, the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 4. The Lord Jesus healed him. Or maybe it is Simon Peter's mother-in-law who had a high fever. To have a high fever at that time in that culture without medicine meant you're at the point of death. Maybe the centurion heard about Simon Peter's mother-in-law being healed instantly. Or maybe they heard about the various diseases that the Lord Jesus had healed. Or maybe it was the leprous man in Luke chapter 5 who was healed. To be a leper at that time was to be a social outcast, to be a loner. Maybe it's the paralytic man who could not walk and yet the Lord healed him. Or maybe it was the man with the withered hand. The Lord healed him completely. Again, when a miracle happens and there's witnesses, news travels fast. The centurion has a serious problem on his hands. His servant is about to die and to step into eternity, and the centurion is desperate. He needs help. I'm sure he's tried every type of medicine. I'm sure he's tried every doctor that's in that area. He's so desperate, he's going to Jesus now. He's determined to have Jesus come to him and heal his servant. So what does he do? He sends this first group of messengers. This group of messengers are Jewish elders. And they're tasked to deliver a message to Jesus. Elders, in general, are usually men who are older. They're the gray-haired men. These are the men who are mature and responsible for socio or religious issues and concerns at that time. But why didn't Jesus, or should I say it like this, why didn't the centurion personally visit Jesus? Why does he send a group of messengers to represent him? Why didn't he go to Jesus directly and plead with him? Well, during that time, it's probable that the centurion was respecting ethnic boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. And by sending emissaries or ambassadors to represent the centurion, he's showing his respect to Jesus. This is important in ancient Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures. In the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion, as it says in Matthew 8, the centurion actually goes directly to Jesus. But in Luke chapter 7, we don't read that. The centurion actually sends a group to represent him to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, there's a more detailed account of this situation with the centurion 
and his servant. And in Luke's gospel, it's more of a summary. So Matthew is more detailed. Luke is more summary in nature. And why do I bring this up? Because the doubters would say, see, this is where the Bible contradicts itself. And if you're an astute student of the Word of God, you'll come to the conclusion quickly that the Bible never contradicts itself. That the Word of God is authoritative and sufficient. It harmonizes like hand and glove in one. So I say this to encourage you. The Bible does not contradict itself. But I am amazed that these Jewish elders, these older men, who are well known in that culture, they're actually, actually representing this centurion. Think about this. Jewish elders representing a Gentile officer. That's unheard of during that time frame. And this Roman centurion would be considered by most Jews as an oppressor of the current regime. But yet we see this relationship, a one relationship of concern. Because during that time frame, relationship between Jews and Gentiles is not one of love and trust. It is not. There's no trust. There is no willingness to help one another. And yet in this situation, the Jewish elders happily go to find Jesus. Why? Because these Jewish elders have high esteem and admiration for the centurion. The emphasis here is that they, they go to find Jesus, and when they finally find Jesus, they plead with Jesus. They urge Jesus. They implore Jesus. They beg Jesus to come to the centurion's house to heal the servant. And not just heal him partially, but to heal him completely. This shows the love, care, and concern of the centurion, which is rare during that time frame, for his servants. And the Jewish elders, their point of view, regarding why Jesus should be motivated to go to the centurion's home and heal this dying servant, Here's the motivating factor in verse 4, according to the Jewish elders. He is worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Just a side note, just real quick. Anytime someone says, I'm worthy of a blessing, you know they have started on the wrong foot. If you've ever read the Bible, to walk up to somebody and say, I'm worthy of a blessing it's always going to end up in a bad way. But nevertheless, these Jewish elders say, this centurion, he's worthy to have you do this for him. What are the Jewish elders saying? They're saying, this Gentile, this Roman officer has value. He has merit. He's deserving of this miracle. The text never states why they came to this conclusion, but I would surmise that if it came from the centurion himself to deliver this message to Jesus, then the centurion is arrogant and prideful. 
He thinks of himself too highly. But if the idea came from the Jewish elders about the worthiness of the centurion, then these Jewish elders have a standard of worthiness that is man-made, that is subjective, that is emotional, that comes and goes like the wind. It's very general and nebulous. But why does the centurion deserve to have his servant healed? These Jewish elders provide two reasons in verse 5, two reasons why Jesus, Jesus should go to, to the centurion's home and heal. And here are the two reasons. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He loves our nation, and he built us a church. That's the reason, Jesus, you should go to the centurion's home and heal this dying servant completely. He has genuine care and affection for the Jewish people. He loves the nation of Israel. He has a high appreciation for them. He supports the Jewish people and their culture and their worship. He's probably a God-fearer. A God-fearer in general is not a Christian. And a God-fearer is not a proselyte. A God-fearer is normally one who believes that there's one God, but at the same time, they don't identify with Jewish customs and religions. They don't abide by them. They don't get circumcised on the eighth day. They don't get circumcised at all. So they don't identify with Jewish worship or religion, but yet they're considered God-fearers. And to have a place of worship is very important for the Jew. Because Jewish worship is where they worship God. This is where they pray. This is where they read the law. This is very important to Jewish identity and culture, to have a place of worship. And this Roman centurion somehow found the monies to fund this project of building a church or a synagogue. But why would he do this? The Bible never states his motivation for helping the Jews. But during that time frame, the Roman government and empire viewed religious stability within the empire as religiously, politically helpful. Because if you don't have any religious or political turmoil, then the Roman government is very stable. Their power is very stable. So the Bible doesn't claim why the centurion would build this synagogue for them, but it's clear that he loves the Jewish people, and he built them this synagogue. Again, when a person believes that they deserve a blessing and that they're worthy of a blessing, that's the epitome of pride and arrogance. I hope we would all come to that conclusion. The Jewish elders are urgently pleading for a miracle based on what? Based on good works. Based on good deeds. Based on reputation and generosity. He loves our people. And he built us a church. That's why, Jesus, you need to come way over here and heal this dying servant. About two weeks ago, 
I think most of us are aware by now. Most of the pastoral team, we went to Atlanta, Georgia for the G3 conference on the sovereignty of God in salvation, sovereignty of God in marriage, sovereignty of God in all areas of life. It was a great time. And then on one of our lunch breaks, all of us piled in the van and we went to this barbecue place for lunch. And my goal was to pay for lunch. But then I realized my card wouldn't work. Why? Because they don't accept cards of any kind. They accept cash only. The good old days. So I started talking to Pastor Corey and the other brothers, and half-jokingly I said, Brother, I guess I'm washing dishes. I'm happy to wash dishes. And I was half-joking. I, ho- I was hoping somebody would pull out their wallet and say, I got cash. So we started trying to figure out a plan. We're very hungry. It's been a long morning. We need to eat, and we need to eat now because we got to get back at a certain time. How are we going to pay for this meal? Well, this sweet African-American lady must have overheard my statement in our conversation. She walks up to us, and she says, I'm going to sow a seed of blessing. And when I bless you, I'm going to be blessed in return. And at first, I didn't understand what she was saying. I was just happy that someone, you know, I'm just being honest. I was just happy that someone was willing to pay for our meal. And so this lady pulls out $20. She gives it to us. And I say thank you. And she left. And I didn't understand the language of, I'm going to sow a seed of blessing, and then I'm going to get a blessing back. Well, Pastor Corey caught on to that real quick. And he said to me after she left, she goes, well, if she really believed that, she should have given us 100 bucks for lunch <laughs> because then she would have gotten 10 times the blessing. You know, that's classic Pastor Corey. I didn't expect any less from him. But is that the way we think about God? That I'm going to give and do a good work and a good deed in order to receive a blessing tenfold, a hundredfold? Do we think we deserve a blessing because we are good people? Is that how you look at yourself? Is that how we look at ourselves? That the only reason I'm motivated to help you is because I'm going to receive something in return. Don't pagans do that? Don't the heathen do that? Don't non-Christians do that? We are worthy. We deserve more blessing. If that's your motivation, your motivation is unbiblical. It's ungodly. The reason that we help and serve other people is not that we receive, but that it brings God all the glory. That's why we bless others. We deserve more blessings. What we deserve, to be honest with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, we deserve God's wrath. That's what we deserve. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, God is loving, but God is also holy. And for some reason in America, we've created a God that is only loving but never holy. God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. And if that's you, you think you're worthy, you've completely misunderstood the Bible. 
You've taken Christ down off of his throne and you've lifted yourself up to be seated at his throne. That's exactly what's happening. You are now the center of the Bible and the universe, not Christ, when we think like that and we act like that. This is the apex and the height of arrogance and pride. I pray that if that's us, that we would repent and trust the Lord to help us. So now we have a better understanding of the Jews' point of view or this first group of messengers. But how does Jesus respond to the Jewish elders' begging request? And that's point number two, the centurion's point of view. Read, read with me in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Here, we see the centurion's heart in the sense that he cares for his servant. He shows kindness to his servant. He loves his servant. He shows the mercy, really, I'm sorry, of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus. He did not question. Jesus did not question. Should I go or not go? He didn't delay. He didn't send a personal group of messengers to represent him. He went. Jesus personally went with the Jewish elders to the home of the centurion. This shows the kindness and grace and mercy of Jesus. Of Jesus. Could, have, could Jesus have sent a delegation to represent him? He could have. His disciples, his apostles, but he did not. He personally went. The centurion must have heard that Jesus was on the way because he had a change of heart. Because at first, he's commanding these Jewish elders to go send a message that Jesus would come to him. And now Jesus is on the way, and he realizes this may be a mistake. He had a change of heart. And as a God-fearer, the centurion realized something about himself. He's unworthy. He's unworthy to have a divine guest in his home. Quickly, the centurion sends a second group. The second group, or this messengers, of messengers, are his personal friends. We see that in verse 6, to represent him. This is a completely different message from the first message. He says, Lord, you can translate that as sir, which is a title of respect. Do not inconvenience yourself. Don't bother yourself to come all the way to my house, to come under my roof and with my family. Somehow the centurion in his change of heart puts two and two together. He realizes that this Jewish miracle worker has the power over life and death. Jesus has healed many people by this time of a variety of maladies and problems. And now if Jesus actually heals his servant who is at the point of death, that means that this Jewish miracle worker has the power over life and death. For example, Simon's mother-in-law with a high fever. 
or with the man with the withered hand or the demon-possessed man, which I talked about earlier. The divine is about to walk into the house of a Gentile, and the Gentile says, no, don't come to me. Don't come to me. Why? Why would this prolific, well-known, well-known reputable Roman Gentile officer say no? Is because he's compared himself to the divine. He says, I'm unworthy, I'm unfit, I'm unqualified, I'm inadequate to have you, Jesus, come into my home to heal my bondservant. This should remind us of Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw all the fish in the net, and the net was breaking. You remember that? Simon Peter and all his fishing buddies went fishing all night long. In the morning, they ended up with a score of zero. Zero fish. Professional fishermen with no fish. Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, Simon Peter, throw your net on the other side. Remember Simon Peter's response? Lord, we've been fishing all night. You really want us to throw the net on the other side? And then Simon Peter in humility says, yes, I'll do that. Throws the net. And then all of a sudden, all of this fish show up so much, so heavy that the nets were breaking. And what does Simon Peter do? What does he say? He falls down at his knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When he compares himself to the divine, he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When people have eyes, eyes of faith, they will see their own sin as wicked and despicable and heinous. They will see that because why? Jesus is glorious. Jesus is holy. Jesus is the Son of God. They know that they're in the presence of the divine. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 6, we see the centurion's humility and respect. That's the emphasis here. Lord, I'm unworthy. Please don't come to my house. Don't come under my roof. What should this teach us? This, is, this should teach us two things that are very important within the Christian life. Number one, we need to know who Christ is. And number two, we need to know who we are. If you're going to have that type of humility, you need to understand who Jesus is and who you are. What's interesting about this word worthy, it's used twice in English in our text today. And when the Jewish elders use it, they say the centurion, he's worthy. He has value. He has merit. Why? Because he loves our people and he built us this Jewish church. But when the centurion uses the same word in English, at least, it's not the same word in the original language. In this case, the centurion is using a different word to describe himself, but he describes himself accurately and completely. He says, I'm undone. I'm unfit. 
I'm unqualified to have you come into my home. I'm unworthy. Why? Because you're deity and I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. So, therefore, I do not presume to come to you. This should remind us of Isaiah 64, 6. You remember Isaiah 64, 6? Israel prays for mercy. Why? Because they've sinned against God and they're unworthy. And verse 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Did you hear that from Isaiah 64, 6? To be unclean means you're defiled. That's what it means to be unclean. You're defiled. You're unfit to be in God's holy presence. And to be a polluted garment, do we really want to know what it means? It means that when a woman is on her monthly menstrual cycle, this discharge is a polluted garment. In other words, no one is sinless before God. No one is sinless. The one who says, I am without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you understand who you are and understand who Christ is, when the gospel comes to us, we embrace it. We receive it. We cherish it. We love it. And we never let it go. No one is sinless before God. And when people in general, especially good well-meaning Christian people say, I am worthy. What they're saying is they're, down, they're downplaying their sin. They make sin small and themselves big. They've lifted themselves to the throne. That's the epitome of pride and arrogance. One reformer says it like this, quote, The great problem for most non-Christians, and even many Christians, is that they are strangers to themselves. You hear that? Most people in general, they're strangers to themselves. They look at the errors of others, but when they look at their own sins, they live with an unwholesome unconsciousness of their own sin. They're strangers to themselves. Does that sound familiar? Didn't we read earlier? Brother, you got a speck in your eyeball and don't realize we got this huge beam, this log, in our own eyeball. C.S. Lewis states it like this, quote, The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. That applies to all of us. That we need to be, as Christians, sensitive to our own sin. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're a non-Christian and you think highly of yourself, you're just filling out your job description. You're just doing what your heart wants to do as a depraved sinner. As a non-Christian, you're heading headlong into your sin. And on that day, God will give you what you want. Even though you may say, well, I didn't want judgment in hell. But that's what you wanted. You wanted sin. 
You love sin. You embrace sin. You were never willing to let sin go. You were not brokenhearted one bit. So God has decided to give you what you want. You can never claim, God, you're being unfair to me. It's not a, an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. However, if you're born again by God's grace, you see clearly what Christ Jesus has done for you. Your nostrils, so to speak, are sensitive to your own sin. You hate your sin. You see clearly the cesspool that's within our own being. You're aware of your own sinful struggles. That does not mean that Christians don't struggle with sin. And well-meaning, genuine Christians do sin. But at the same time, you love Jesus and you're doing your best by God's grace, by the aid of the Spirit, to fight sin. Real Christians struggle against sin. But if you're a born-again Christian, and all you focus on is your sin, every day it's all my sin, all my sin, next day all my sin, and all my sin, and that's all you focus on, that's a type of slavery. I hope you understand that. Because in those moments, you have forgotten the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You've forgotten God's grace. I want to encourage you, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. For us. In that, while we were still sinners, we weren't lovely, we weren't beautiful. We didn't come running to Christ. We didn't say, we love you, Lord. No, in that, while we were still sinners, we hated God. Christ Jesus died for us. That's a beautiful verse. This Gentile has the right view of himself. And in his difficulty, he goes to the right person. And in God's grace, he sees his own sin. And he sees Jesus clearly. Is that your attitude when you come to Jesus? Do you see your own sins clearly? Or are you like the Jewish elders? I'm worthy. He's worthy. I'm worthy. Do you say that about yourself? The proper way to come to Jesus is in humility and respect. And you say, Lord Jesus, I'm unworthy and I need your help, O Lord. That's the proper way to come to Jesus. Please help me. So we've seen the point of view from the Jewish elders and the centurion. Now point number three. Jesus' point of view in verse seven, the second half of verse seven. The centurion says this, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well, the centurion says to Jesus, Jesus, give the verbal command. Say the word. And if you will say the word, my servant will live. My servant will be healed. 
The centurion, he understands leading people. He understands authority. He understands military authority. And he actually says, I'm under authority as well. And he gives Jesus several examples of that military authority. He says to those who are in lower ranks, he says, you, go. And guess what happens? He goes. And he says to another lower ranking individual, come. And he comes. And he says to a servant, do this. And he does it. So the centurion understands authority very well. And the centurion says, just speak the word, Jesus, and my problem goes away. And my servant does not die. He'll be made completely well. And here's what's being implied. And it's this. The centurion's military authority is under Christ's ultimate authority. That's what's being said. He's saying, Jesus, your authority is greater than my authority. I'm under your authority. You are greater than me. That's what he's saying. And how did Jesus heal? He spoke the word. He spoke the word. Let me give us some examples. When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, if we remember, Jesus' command or word to the demons was this. Be silent and come out of him. That is Christ's authoritative word. Saying to the demons, come out of him. And what happened? The demons came out of him. And the people said to one another, you remember? What is this word? What is this word that Jesus gave? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. Jesus spoke the word. When Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a high fever, she's at the point of death as well. Jesus spoke the word. He said, he rebuked the fever, and it says it left her in Luke 4, 39. Rebuked the fever, and it left her. She was healed instantly. He spoke the word. Or when Jesus healed the leper, do you remember what the leper said? Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Every time I read that story in the gospel, it softens my heart. Because lepers were outcasts. They were discriminated against. They were on the fringe of society. Nobody loved them. Nobody cared for them. And this leper comes to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does the unspeakable. He touches the leper. You're not supposed to touch the leper, Jesus. Obviously, nobody told him that. He touches the leper. And he says, I will be clean. Be clean. Oh, the love of Jesus is amazing. He spoke the word and he healed him. Or when Jesus healed the paralytic, Jesus tells the paralytic, take up your bed and walk and go home. And immediately what happens? He picks up his bed. He walks and he goes home. And while he's walking home, he's glorifying God in the process. Praise God. 
How many times has God answered our prayer and we don't thank God? He goes home glorifying God. Jesus spoke the word. Or the man with the withered hand, Jesus says to him, Stretch out your hand. That's the verbal command. And the man was completely healed. He spoke the word. You know, there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference between military authority and ultimate authority. There's a difference between man's word and Jesus' word. There's a difference between man's command and Jesus' command. When Jesus speaks, something special is about to happen. When Jesus gives a command, it's with ultimate authority. When Jesus heals, have you ever noticed as you read through the Bible, when Jesus heals, he, the people are automatically healed instantly, immediately. It's, there's not a 24-hour delay. There's no buffering. There's no two- or three-day wait. There's no probation. When Jesus heals, people are healed. The purpose of Jesus' healing, by the way, is to prove that he's the king of the new kingdom. It's to prove that he is the Old Testament promised Messiah, the New Testament Christ. His miracles prove that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 107, verse 20, which says, He sent out his word, and he healed them. He sent out his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. There's a, there's a side note that I want to make crystal clear. All of us, all of us as Bible believers, must be skeptical of modern-day healers. How come when they heal, they only heal what you can see with your human eye, but they can't heal the cancer that's within the body? We need to be skeptical of modern-day healers. And we need to compare that to the Word of God. What does Jesus do? Jesus heals people completely. Is Jesus willing to heal or not heal? The centurion servant. In Luke's account, Jesus does not give a direct word or direct command of healing. He doesn't do that in Luke's account, which we just read. However, in Matthew's account, which is the more detailed account, Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Not 24 to 48 hours later. Not a week later. He didn't take any medicine. He didn't go to the doctor. He was healed instantly. From that very moment, the centurion's personal servant, at the point of death, was healed completely and instantly from a distance. He's not trying to get 70,000 people into a stadium. And that if you want to be healed, write your request on a piece of paper. And oh, by the way, add 20 bucks to the envelope and send it in. Does that make any sense? Jesus healed with authoritative power at a distance. Praise God. If modern day healers are so great, why can't they heal from their living room? 
Nevertheless, we need to look at Jesus' final statement in verse 9. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus has not found throughout his earthly ministry that type of faith. That faith within the nation of Israel, within the Jewish culture. I hope we understand, if we read this in context, that this is an indictment against Israel for not believing in the promised Old Testament Messiah. This is an indictment against them. But it's a positive to the Gentile Roman who believed with eyes of faith. Jesus is not referring to saving faith for this individual. He's not referring to saving faith that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. This is a faith or a trust in a medical miracle. The centurion nor his servant is looking to be forgiven of all their sins. They're going to Jesus simply for, I heard you could heal, heal my servant. That's the reason. They're not looking for the forgiveness of sins. And regarding this medical miracle, the centurion had a serious problem, and he went to the right person. Praise the Lord. But they were not looking for salvation. And the reason that this servant was healed is not because he's a good person, and is not because he did good works and deeds. It's nothing about him. This servant was healed because of God's grace in Christ. It's all of grace, healed by grace. Somebody needs to create a song, Healed by Grace. Because that's exactly what happened. Healed by grace. As I conclude here, in the 19th century, there were two influential preachers. We know of one, Charles Spurgeon, but most people are not familiar with Joseph Parker. Joseph Parker. That was his contemporary in the 19th century. Parker, on one occasion, commented on Spurgeon's deplorable conditions within his orphanage. So Spurgeon was responsible for taking care of many children. Parker made a comment in public saying, these conditions for these children are deplorable. Well, Spurgeon heard about it, and if you've read any of Spurgeon's work, he has a little bit of a temper from time to time. So what does Spurgeon do? From his pulpit, the very next Sunday, he blasts Parker from the pulpit. So then he did so in such a way that the people, because there's no social media, they put it in newspaper, they spread it around. All of the Londoners wanted to hear, what is Parker going to say? How is Parker going to respond? So all these people went to Parker's church the very next Sunday. And he says this, quote, Parker says this, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here for the orphanage. And how did the crowd respond? They were delighted. They were joyful. They gave so much money that they had to clear the collection plate three times because so many people gave. And then the very next week in Parker's office, he hears a... It was Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. And Spurgeon said to Parker, You know, Parker, you've practiced grace on me. 
You've practiced grace on me. You didn't give me what I deserve. You gave me what I needed. You didn't give me what I deserve. You gave me what I needed. The centurion's servant did not receive what he deserved based on that request, the request to be healed. What this servant received was grace. He was healed by grace. So what do you see in today's text, brother and sister in Christ? Or better yet, what do you not see in the text? This question has eternal significance for you. Because how you see Jesus right here, right now, has eternal impact. And that's the question before you today. If you think highly of yourself, you're going to say, I am worthy. You're going to have this attitude. You're going to have this mentality. I want you to remember this, if this is you. God opposes the proud. God has unique ways of humbling people. And if you haven't been humbled, just wait a few minutes. It's coming. But if you see yourself as unworthy, you're saying, Lord, I'm unworthy. Please help me. I want to encourage you with this. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. And if you're not a Christian, it's because you have scales on your eyes right now. You have scales on your eyes, and you need eyes of faith to see Jesus clearly. And what you need to do is you need to cry out to the Lord Jesus, Lord, please help me see you clearly. Because unless you help me, I'm undone. Pray that God would show you your need of him. Don't go to Jesus and say, I'm worthy. Go to Jesus and say, I'm unworthy. If you want to know what the gospel of grace is in Jesus Christ, you want to know more about biblical Christianity, I hope that you would come talk to one of the pastors. I hope you would talk to the couple that's at the table here, the welcome table. And talk to them and ask them. We're here to serve you. We're here to help you. And for God's people, be encouraged. Praise God that he had mercy, kindness, and love towards you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. That the Lord is gracious to us in Christ. Sermon in a sentence. When we see Jesus as divine, we will approach him in humility and respect and thank him for his grace to us let's pray father we admit to you that even though we don't say the words i am worthy in our hearts and in our lives and how we function from day to day we have lived lives and had attitudes of thinking we are worthy Lord, please forgive us in Christ all over again. Please forgive us. Remind us of the grace that you first showed us when you saved us. And remind us, Lord, that we live by grace day by day. We thank you for our gracious, wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.